For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What, then, shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charges against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is to the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for for giving your word. Thank you that we can read it, that we've got it in our language, Lord. Thank you for the way you transform lives of people who who go into your word, who, who read it. Thank you for communicating to us through it. Lord, thank you for the assurances we can grasp from passages like this. Lord, help us to, um, to listen this afternoon. Help us to, to take on our own reading. Help us to not merely listen to your word, but to do what it says. Lord, pray now for Mikey that you would um, speak through him, that you would keep him faithful to your word and open our ears to hear you through Mikey's words. Amen. Well, thanks for having me again. We're already here. It's been a bit of a whirlwind day and I hope it's been helpful to you and I hope the conversations in between times have also been a nice time to catch up with each other and talk about life and Christian life, uh, the good things as well as the struggles. Our final session is, um, I don't want to say the first practical one because those big things are very practical. They're the foundations for what life is all about. Um, but if you like, this will be more particularly focused on the details of how we use the Bible in our lives every day, in our decision-making, in the challenges and the quirks and the conundrums that come up all the time for us. Um, If God has spoken and it is written, well, then what, what does that mean for my life? What's God's plan for my life? Because the Bible isn't just theory. It's not just a philosophical... Uh, view of things, and it's not just a religious, liturgical thing for Sundays, but it's very practical. It's God's word for your life. How do you live your life? How do you make decisions? Yeah, how, how do you live a life worth living? The Bible is the light that shines us the way. How do you make choices, weigh up possible options? How do you process the opinions of others? The Bible helps you do that. And so that's what we're looking at in this section, uh, this final session today. God is a speaking God, 
that is who God is. In his very, there is a God who is a speaking personal God. He spoke the world into being. He acts by speaking his creative word. He makes words of promise and covenant. And that word has been written down. This authoritative, living, objective, God-breathed scripture that we have. God illuminates that word by his spirit so we can receive it and trust it, repent and obey. Um, And this word is the necessary word to know God and the sufficient word to know God. And that's particularly really what we're applying now, is that if the Bible is necessary to know and obey God, more if it's everything we need, remember 2 Timothy 3, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, if it's all we need to be fully equipped for any issue in our lives, any lifestyle and town or city or family situation or health situation, any of us must have the Bible to know God and obey him. But if we have the Bible, we've got all we need. What does that look like in practice? That's this session, really. Applying the sufficiency of scripture. First heading we'll look at, what is God's plan for my life? The second heading we'll look at is how does God guide me there? And then the third heading is, so what do I do about that? What's God's plan for my life? How does God guide me there? And what do I do about that? God has a plan for your life. What's God's plan? Well, God has a plan for your life. A great plan, a special plan. What would you expect that to be? What would you expect God's wonderful, special plan for your life to be? What kind of plan? Will it be worthy of you? Will it be inspiring for you? What would you like God's plan for your life to be? What would you like to hear? What would you expect to hear? It's, it's important to ask that because I think some, to some degree our expectations shape what we hear. If we hear something that we don't want to hear, sometimes we ignore it. Oh, that's not quite what I hoped. And so we almost tune it out. Um, or, or we don't fully receive it because it's not quite what, what we thought we'd get. And so it's very important at this point to almost name it and go, I, I kind of hope that God's plan for me would be this or that. Or I have these expectations. It's, it's helpful to name them and almost put them to one side so that we can actually pay attention and listen to what what God says is his plan for your life. God's got a wonderful plan for your life. Well, it's here in Romans 8 that was read for us. Here we have God's wonderful, breathed out, authoritative, perfect, holy word about his plan for your life. 8 verse 28. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. All things are caught up and managed and led by God's loving care for good. It's a good plan, a blessing plan, a wonderful plan. Everything will turn out all right for those who love God, verse 28, for those who've been called according to his purpose. There's a narrowness there, you see. (laughs) It's not that no matter who you are, where you are, everything always for everyone will turn out for good. God is working out something particularly for those who he's called, who he's chosen, who he's blessed. It's a gospel plan. 
God's good plan for your life is the plan for those who would receive his gospel, trust his saviour Jesus, be adopted and blessed and found in Jesus. That's the promise we have. Yeah, That's where the good's to be found. If I want a plan for my life, the good, wonderful, blessing plan of God is only for those in Jesus. Makes responding to the gospel so important. But what is the good? Okay, let's say that you do trust in Jesus. Yes, I'm a Christian. I'm at a Bible convention. Yes, I trust in Jesus. Here's how it happened as I grew up or when I was at school or university or some later time. I now trust in Jesus. So what's the plan? What's the good? What's the blessing? What's the special plan that God has for my life? Verse 29. Those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's the good. To be conformed to the image of Jesus. To become Christ-like. That's the plan back before the beginning of time, foreknown and predestined. God's sovereign predestining purpose for those in Christ is that they become like him. And so he be first more among many brothers. That's the great plan, the great hope, the great blessing, the great promise. I've got a wonderful plan for your life that if you're in Jesus, you'll be made like him, conformed to his likeness, that he'll be firstborn among many brothers. That's God's plan for your life. And ultimately, you see, it's it's not just my personal one, you see. If if you were thinking, oh, what's God's plan for my life, the wife, the kids, the job, the the fruitful ministry, um, these are the things I, I thought would be God's plan for my life, then it's a bit disappointing. Oh, just being made like Jesus. (laughs) But no, you see, this is the thing. Far more important than what I fancy I'm suited for in terms of family or career or doing wonderful things for God, far more important than that is what God has done for me. That this world, this universe, all things are not working for my ambition, my vocation, my fulfilment. But firstly, verse 29 For Jesus' glory, that he may be the firstborn. And secondly, for our joy as together, communally, all who are the brothers and sisters of Jesus, together, bound up in the church, are glorifying him by being made like him. Can you hear that? God's plan for your life. Mold your life around that. God's plan for your life. Emotionally tune in your expectations to that. I mean, yeah, but I want to be a rock star, Mikey. Or I want to be the next great missionary, Mikey. Or I want to be an astronaut. Or I want to be a great, the next great business entrepreneur success story. Or... I want to be married and have kids, and I've already picked out their names. They'll be Esther and Ruth and Josiah, and you know. And this is where actually I think that the Bible and its priorities really blesses us. Because you see, if if central to your life and your passion and your energy is a picture of a happy family or a picture of what success in your career would be like or an image of something that will make you special outside of Christ, then you are set up for disappointment. There's probably many of you here 
uh, live long enough, you're bound to be disappointed, aren't you? Because the, the horrible secret is you often don't get what you want and if you do get what you want, you find it's not as satisfying as you thought it would be. Isn't that the awful secret, right? <laughs> that we think if only I could get what I want. The only reason I'm not happy is I didn't get what I want. And we run that in our heads, don't we? This is what life, this isn't what life was, what I thought it would be like. This is what I imagined. When I was in high school, when everything was going great, I never thought I'd end up like we were driving to work and suddenly we were, we're living in Launceston. And I didn't expect to be doing that. And, it's, and, it's, and you get home and life is hard at home and, or lonely. Or, and I never thought life would be like this. Often we don't get what we want. And if we did get what we want, we'd still, we'd still not be truly satisfied. And so it's a, it's a tyranny, it's an enslavement, it's an imprisonment to, to live for worldly hopes and expectations and ambitions to fill the hole. If I just had the recognition or the parental approval or the romantic love or the, um, the, uh, the success um, that I hoped for, I think I deserve, or I think I'd need. If I just had the holiday I wanted to have, but it then got to where it rained out or the flights were delayed, it wasn't quite what I thought. If I could just... It can become up in prison. Rather than us seeing those things as gifts to be freely given by God and enjoyed if he gives them, as free gifts. God in his kindness gave us the holiday, the dream holiday. Wow, what a gift. God in his kindness has made me successful with the work of my hands. Oh, praise God, what a gift. Um, rather than seeing them as gifts freely given, they become must-haves. They become the fix that you need to get you through. And so what a great freedom it is to say, actually, no, my, my life itself and God's purposes are bigger than getting what I fancy I need or desire. It's to be made like Jesus, to be conformed to his likeness and eternity, to be with him as a him, a firstborn among many brothers, not ashamed to call me his, his brother, and, and, and to be there together with all our brothers and sisters forever and ever and ever. You will not be sitting there 3,000 years into eternity, bitterly comparing the fact that your business competitor did better than you, even though they're not as capable as you are. It's not fair. It's all just because they happen to know certain people and blah, 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 blah. You won't be doing that, will you? It's a wonderful liberation. And look, I, I think this is a point where Christianity is really radical in our world and our culture today. And I feel like I need to again and again say, as a minister of the gospel, and particularly as a pastor to young people, to say something which is controversial, I think, in our world today. And that is to say, you can live a life that is disappointing and painful and hard and lonely and unsatisfying, and if you are doing the right thing, it is a good life. That is almost insane <laughs> in, in parts of our culture today, to say that it's possible to live a good life, a life worth living, um, even if it makes you suffer, be frustrated, disappointed, and lonely. Unimaginable! <laughs> because in some parts of our society, life is all about uh, being fulfilled and successful and happy at all costs. And so I think it's at this point we need to keep coming back to this reality, this great, this uniquely Christian vision of the world to say, 
more important than fulfilment, happiness, uh, completeness, uh, uh, satisfaction now, more important than that is doing what is right, what is true, what is noble, what is ultimately important. And that is a good way to live. And we need to tell stories and repeat it and sing it and, and say it and preach it again and again because in many parts of our culture that's alien. That's increasingly an alien thing. And it's just common sense in many parts of our society today. You, you don't seem happy, mate. That, this is how, what mates say to mates. You know, mate, you don't seem happy, mate. Things aren't going well for you. You need to change it up, mate. You need to because it's important that you be happy. That's what mates say to mates nowadays. That's what doctors say to patients nowadays. That's what counsellors say to their um, clients nowadays. Do whatever you have to do because you're not happy at the moment. Where are the people saying, you know what? It may be better for you to stick with something that is difficult hard and and actually maybe does make you unhappy because it's right and God's given you that place that role to do this hard thing that is right because God is making you like Christ God is forming in all things even this so-called loveless marriage even with this sickness even with this burden God is working all of those things to make you like Christ. It's a good calling. It's part of the whole universe being made right in the end. 18 to 25, the whole universe will be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Look at that, verse 20, 8 verse 20. The creation will be subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. It hoped that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. This is the most wonderful thing in all the universe. It is greater than house, holiday, husband, kids, yacht, acclaim. It's not just about things you get and what people think. This is deep. This has been made like Jesus for eternity. And it's not a lonely thing. It's with all of God's people. It's sure, verse 28 to 30, predestined, foreknown, justified, glorified. It's sure, nothing, verse 38. Neither angels, nor demons, nor present, nor the future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything can separate you from the love of Christ. For he's died for you. He now intercedes for you. None can condemn you. It is good. God's plan for your life to save you and make you like Christ for eternity is good. That's his good plan. Hear that gospel call, won't you? Receive Jesus, for that's the only place eternal life can be found. Receive Jesus, his death for your sins. Only in him is eternal life to be found. But then delight in Jesus. His plan and purpose for you is good. And it's good so that it colours and, and sweetens the most bitter, painful, wretched, difficult life. What's God's plan for my life? Secondly, how does God guide me there? If that's God's big purpose in life, 
if that's the story that I'm in, if that's my destiny, how do I fulfil my destiny? How do I play my part in the story? How do I know what to do next? How does God guide me? How am I led? I mentioned the book um, Guidance and the Voice of God. I don't know whether you've already sold that one, John. We've still got that. So if you've not read it, you can come and see John after this and and get it off him. Um, uh, Let me just summarise a little section of that book where it really helpfully describes how God guides in the Bible. In that book, Guidance and the Voice of God, firstly they say, little five steps here, God sovereignly guides all things behind the scenes. That's 828. All things, God works according to his purpose. Yeah? Behind all things, God is at work. Yeah? Behind the scenes in everything. So in a sense, how does God guide me? All the time, he's at work. Yeah? I can't ruin his plan because God is inevitably working out his plan. There's a wonderful security in that teaching of the sovereignty of God. But secondly, in many ways, God can and has spoken to people with their conscious cooperation. There's all sorts of ways God's done it in the past, many various ways. Uh, God spoke through a a hovering hand writing on the wall to warn, didn't he? Um, uh, God spoke through a donkey to Balaam at one time in the book of Numbers. God spoke through prophets, through writing on stones, all sorts of various things. God has spoken in visions and dreams and prophets and angels and burning bushes. Yeah, Hebrews 1, you'll come across to that because we'll look at that now. Hebrews 1 says, uh, in the past God spoke to our prophets. Hebrews 1 verse 1, God spoke through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Hebrews 1 verse 1. But just because God can speak through a donkey doesn't mean you go looking for donkeys every time you have a difficult decision to make. Yeah? Just because God can and has and could doesn't mean we ought to expect that he will and promises to, does he? Yeah? That's like what I said in the last session about sometimes a story is told in the Bible because it's normal and it's a model story. Sometimes a story is told in the Bible because it's abnormal and it's newsworthy because it's unusual. Look, a dog on a skateboard. That's on the news because dogs don't normally skateboard. You know, you know. So sometimes in the same way we find unusual stories worthy of comment. You know, Jesus says it, doesn't he, in um, Luke 4 where he says, Look, in Elijah's time, Elijah's time there were many widows. But he, he, he came and provided a, a miracle to the, the widow in, in Nain, was it? Um, uh, there were many others who Elijah didn't go to, you know, but we just get the story, the unusual story. Which is then brings us to the third thing, right? First, God can do it, he's always doing it behind the scenes. Secondly, in the past, God can and has done it in many various ways. Third, uh, in the last days, God has spoken to us by his son. Hebrews 1 verse 1, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophet in many times in various ways. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he pointed the heir of all things, through whom he made the universe, he's the radiance of God's glory, he's provided purification for sins, he's sat down at the majesty on heaven, he's got the most superior name. It's a final thing. AD, we are in the year of our Lord. 
the last days when the son has come with a final word, died for the forgiveness of sins, rules as the Lord of history. The only thing of major significance left in God's timetable is the return and the final judgment. The word for this age is the word of Jesus. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. Don't go looking around for talking donkeys and new apostles. Don't think Jesus is small. Oh, of course I believe in Jesus. That's how I got my sins forgiven. But I tell you what I'm really excited about. Something else. And I don't shrink Jesus to just adore. That's how I got into heaven. Jesus. And he's good. But I tell you what's really great. Let me tell you this story. And the donkey talked to me. And now I get to be a ballerina for God or something. I don't know. Um, uh, Jesus and what he has done. That's what the first point, right? What he has done is the great thing. It's God's plan for our lives. It's our destiny. Is the best thing. If you don't see Jesus as big and what he has done and what he is doing and his purpose as big, then that will distort your priorities. Yeah? In all sorts of ways. Fourth, um, God guides us now by his Son through his Spirit in the Scriptures. God guides us now by his Son through his Spirit. In the scriptures. That was the last talk, right? The scriptures correct us, teach us, comfort us, encourage us, rebuke us, direct us, train us, make us wise, remind us, inspire us. Yeah? The scriptures are how God conforms us to the likeness of Jesus. Yeah? By the power of the Holy Spirit, through the living word, God forms the character and tests the heart. I mean, here in Hebrews, you see that wonderful passage, don't you? In chapter 4, verses... Um, 12 and 13 of Hebrews. The word of God is living, active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The word penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrows. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him. Before him we must give an account. Yeah? The scriptures is how God guides us and leads us in God's purposes. And fifth, so behind the scenes, God always guides. He can guide in various various ways. He's spoken to us by the Son. He now guides us by his Son through the Spirit in the Scriptures. And fifth, in this really helpful summary from the book, Guidance and the Voice of God, the fifth observation is we don't have a promise that God will use any other means of guidance. There's no expectation for the everyday Christian that God will give a dream or a vision or a donkey or a feeling of being led uh, as a normal, expected form of guidance. He could. He might. Perhaps he has. But we don't need it or need to expect it. The scriptures are sufficient to thoroughly equip you for every good work. We mustn't think, oh, the Bible's generally good. It's how you get saved, and it's how you learn to be moral. It's good. But you need another package of things to know what job to take and who to marry. and what. You need other things for that. What, if we think that way, what can end up happening is we can end up 
missing when God chooses not to speak deliberately. Let me say that again. If we start looking for other forms of guidance too much, we can miss when God has chosen not to speak deliberately. Yeah? You're raising kids and you're trying to teach them something and um, <laughs> it happened last night, right? They, they talk about a boy look, don't they? It's a bit sexist, but there you go. The, the boy who goes, um, you know, my son said, um, where's the library books? To my wife, Nikki. And she goes, in the bag with the library books. Where's that? He says. She goes, have you looked for it? And he goes, I don't know where it is. And she goes, look for it. <laughs> and then I think it's like this. Can't see it anywhere. Where is it? That's the boy look, right? <laughs> I, I couldn't find the coffee. <laughs> um, at that point, what, what the, the mum or the dad has to say is, I'm not telling you. I'm deliberately choosing not to say because you need to learn to take the responsibility to look like a human being with eyes. You know, that's part of training. It's part of teaching. Part of training is sometimes refusing to, Right? It's a bit like in the workplace. Those of you who have people working for you in various capacities, they come to you with a problem and they go, oh, uh, Ken, the um, doodle wanger's not working. Uh, and, um, and you go, oh, okay. Um, why do you think so? Oh, I could be this. Okay, well, try that then. That's what, that's what a good boss does, right? Even as the boss, you always go, the doodle wanger's not working. <laughs> Rip off your Superman suit and fly in and fix the doodle wanger then you're going to be a burnt-out boss, aren't you? Always swooping into the rescue like Superman, um, never having any time off because you've never trained others to solve problems, you know? And so also our Lord God sometimes may not speak on a matter. He may have deliberately chosen not to speak on a matter because he wants us to see that far more important than what job we get is the way in which we do the job in godliness and integrity and generosity with any profit we make, yeah? Far more in profit than finding Mr. Right and Mrs. Right and how, what's God's will for the exact person I should marry um, is how I conduct myself in loving self-sacrifice, laying down my life for my wife as Christ did for the church that she may uh, become a radiant bride, yeah? Sometimes God chooses to leave space for what the scriptures call wisdom, that's why we've got Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and all these books that are not rules, but rules of thumb. That's why in Romans that we've just been looking at, in chapter 12, he speaks about how we will be able to test and approve what God's will is by the transforming and renewing of our minds. That God's goal for you is not that you just be uh, like a kind of robot or a cyborg, C-3PO, you know, or the Terminator. And you go, I went to church. And then you get to church and you sit there and freeze. I go home now and cook for family. And you cook for your family and just freeze. Until <laughs> now I must go to sleep. And then you go to No, no, God, God has made you someone who is to live a full human life in wisdom. Where you have to make judgments about when to sow and when to reap and when to parent and when to work and when to rest. Three big categories I think we find in scripture. Wisdom, conscience, and preference. 
This is really expanding on that five headings there. Three big con- things. And this is the end of this, um, uh, how does God guide? Three things. Wisdom, conscience, and preference. Wisdom is that weighing of practical pros and cons. God wants us to be wise. Godly and wise. And, and wisdom means we may well, um, there may be multiple good options. And that's, that's fine. We don't need a word from God because either option is good. Either marrying Sally or Susan would be good. Either working in Westbury or another place beginning with W, West Tamar, is, um, uh, is good. You know, it, it's, it's fine. Um, wisdom, the weighing, the thinking, the seeking advice. Conscience is the second aspect. Conscience is our emotional, moral sense our emotional, moral sense. In the Bible, conscience doesn't give you information. Uh, In the modern world, we often talk of conscience as a way of knowing what's right and wrong. No, the Bible doesn't speak of conscience as another way of God speaking to us. It's more our awareness of our convictions, that what we already know to be right and wrong, conscience is like moral pain. You begin to feel that awful, sick feeling of a guilty conscience that tells you, I'm being dodgy here, get out quick. Or that lovely, glowing, warm feeling of, this is right, this is good. Yeah? And so conscience is given to us as, as, as creatures of God in order to provide, just like a physical pain mechanism. You hurt yourself and you, ow, hot. <laughs> and that's a, that's a pain that's good for you. Conscience is just the moral version of that. God gives us that, so we go, oh, that's, oh, that's dodgy, that's not right. I, I shouldn't be in this situation, that's not appropriate. I, I shouldn't be saying that, that's out of line, you know. That, or, that's good, I should do that again, that was really, that was generous, you know. Um, and so the scriptures, particularly in 1 Corinthians 8, 9 and 10, speak a lot about conscience and about the need to guard that moral sense even if your conscience is weak. In chapter 8 of, of, um, of 1 Corinthians 8, you can come across there if you like, where he speaks of whether or not to eat food that had been offered up to a god and was now sold in the market. He says, well, look, offered to a false god, Allah doesn't exist. The Greek gods and the Roman gods, they don't exist. There's no such thing. There's only one god, the Lord, Father, Son and Spirit. But 8 verse 7 Not everyone knows this. Some people, here's the conscience you see, are so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol and since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. Yeah, And he says, well, that's not true, verse 8, but, verse 9, be careful that the exercise of your freedom doesn't become a stumbling block to the weak for if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating, won't they be emboldened um, and, and so on. We need to guard our conscience, you know, to actually make decisions in line with our own moral maturity. If you've been raised in a very strict Christian home, there might be certain um, unbiblical but, but still good traditions of the way you might conduct yourself, what, whether it's appropriate to, um, uh, to ever eat a, a meal without saying a verbal grace with your head bowed, um, or whether it's really appropriate to... Um, to raise your hands as you sing, or there might be all sorts of things that might cause you troubles, whether it's appropriate to dance at a wedding, or you know, whether it's appropriate to drink. 
uh, alcohol. And, and these things might be so deeply in you, you, you need to honour those things. Yeah? Slowly educate your conscience, not run ahead of your conscience. Yeah? And so conscience helps inform our action negatively. Don't go against your conscience. But it also helps guide our, our decisions positively. Sometimes we might experience a particular burden of desire to do good in a particular way that's not necessary, yeah, but is still very good. Moved to foster or adopt, um, uh, for example. Not every Christian must foster and adopt, but it's a wonderful good deed. Uh, travel to a less resourced part of the world in order to, to be missionary or just practical support there. Not every Christian has to do that. Um, be involved in some parachurch ministry in the city. You don't have to do that. But you may actually, your moral sense may actually warm to that and you go, I see the need. I want to meet the need. What can I do? Yeah? And I think that's often what we mean by I feel led. Not particularly that God is leading you in some supernatural way, but your own conscience is warming in a good way, formed like Christ, growing in wisdom, growing in character, filled with the fruit of the Spirit. You hear of an opportunity to do good, or you hear of an opportunity for ministry, or you see it, and, and you're then drawn to it as a good thing. Which brings us then to the final uh, step here, before I make some uh, closing applications in the short third point. I do want to give us time for questions, so I'll, I'll strive to be brief such as I mean such things. Uh, <laughs> preference is the third category there uh, wisdom conscience and then a one I don't think we talk about too often uh, in, in church perhaps but is clearly in the scriptures which is do what you want to sounds naughty to say it doesn't it do what you want to but that's what we find in 1 Corinthians 7 a discussion about the great advantages of the single life yeah and yet at the conclusion of the chapter, having made all of these strong arguments about why singleness is to be highly valued over marriage, he then says um, uh, in verse 36 and following, if you feel like you're acting improperly to someone you're engaged to and they're getting on the years, you feel you ought to marriage, verse 36, he should do as he wants. If he's not sinning, he should marry. All the way through the chapter, the tone is like that. I think this is good, but I'm not going to command you. Do what you want. 1 Peter chapter 5, speaking to elders, similarly says, serve as elders if you're willing, not because you must. Do it if you want to. <laughs> strange, isn't it? Um, Aristotle and then, then theologians quoting from him describe desire as reasonable passion or reasonable emotion. Or passionate reason. I think that's a good description. It's the, I've thought about it and now I'm desiring to do this. Desires aren't always sinful. Preference isn't always sinful. There is sinful, selfish um, preference and desire. Living only for self and the wicked desires of the sinful nature. But not every desire is like that because God made each of you different. And put each of you in different circumstances, with different backgrounds, with different responsibilities. We are diverse. It's like the teaching in scripture about many gifts. Many, we're different. We're not all the same. 
And because of that, one of you will be drawn passionately uh, to academic pursuits and do good in that way, or political endeavour, or working with your hands, or hospitality, or gently, lovingly, faithfully being a friend to a few. Some of you will marry and have families and be active in a local community. Others of you will stay unattached and be able to serve in other ways to greater degrees. Some of you will enrich the world and so warm people's hearts and imaginations through art and through food and through friendship. Others of you will just uh, live a frugal life, highly productive, and make a massive bottom line impact. There's many different ways that God has wired us, many different lives God has given us to. And sometimes the answer is, I want to be like Christ. I've thought about what's wise. There are many possible options that my conscience is satisfied with. I just want to do that one. And that's okay. (laughs) It's okay for you to say, I could have done this. I just chose not to. I could have been involved in this ministry. I just chose not to. In the end, we do that all the time. And it's actually one of the ways Scripture speaks about living the godly life. Do what you want. Strange, isn't it? The godly desire. Yeah? So thirdly then, think of a big decision in your life. Should I change jobs? Uh, Should I say yes to serving in Sunday school ministry next year? Which church should we go to? Uh, you know, should I ask her out? Should I ask the question? Um, what should we do with our kid who's really struggling at the moment? You know, these tricky questions we're all wrestling with all the time, right? How should I manage, where should our giving go this next financial year? Big decisions and small decisions, yeah? What do we do? Well, first of all, under this third heading, get perspective. That's been the big, and I think that's the biggest thing. Get perspective. Eternal perspective, and also just in this life, long-term perspective. Yeah, make your decisions in the light of eternity in heaven and hell, fearing the sinful nature, and eagerly desiring the fruits of the spirit. And think about what will make a long-term impact in your church, in your family, in your life, in your community. Get perspective. That's the first big thing, and that's why days like this are helpful for us. That's why. Church, week after week, is helpful for us. It's, an ex- it's a perspective moment to draw us back up yeah, and see things from the largest perspective. Not reacting, yeah, but proacting. Getting perspective may often lead you to be content and hold your ground. Getting perspective may drive you to do the most radical and extraordinary things that might seem crazy for those who only live for the here and now. Get perspective. Uh, The second big thing in terms of how we make decisions is seek advice. If we need to be wise, if we need to listen to our conscience, if we need to weigh our preferences, then seeking the advice of friends, family, church is good and right, isn't it? Uh, It's very hard to be wise on our own. It's very hard to know our own desires clearly. I mean, to use the example of marriage and dating that we see all the time in the uni ministry, um, uh, desire and romance is so strong. It's wonderfully strong. It's intoxicatingly strong. It can be used to bring two people together on the whole adventure of life. 
but it can be blinding and, and kind of maddeningly, unhelpfully strong as well. And so it's very important for romantic relationships to be formed to some extent in community. You know, that, the, oh, uh, you know, I love him, he's so great, he's so wonderful, he gets me, he gets me, and oh, blah, 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 blah. All the friends are going, the guy's a dropkick, the guy's a total waster. Um, uh, oh, but you don't know him as I know him. Yeah, we do. <laughs> and sometimes you need that, that kind of the perspective of others to see something. You hear sometimes with people agonising about, oh, I don't know if I should do this, I don't know if I should do this. All the friends around them go, it's totally fine, it's a great opportunity. What are you agonising about? That's a great decision in terms of job. It's scary, but it's right. We're behind you. Go. Did not, have you had those experiences? It's really helpful to have those experiences. Wisdom can look out of, the, of others, can look out of the moment of, um, of my particular panic to see the big picture and ask the big picture questions. Yeah? Seek advice. As a pastor, it's often sad when you have people come to you. Remember this being a pastor in church. People would come to you um, having basically made a decision about something and then say, hey, look, we've, we've been making this decision for a year. We've finally made the decision and now we're notifying you. Uh, we're leaving next week. <laughs> you know. and, and it's often quite a sad... Sometimes, for various reasons, that's the way people have to do what they've got to do. But it's often sad because you feel like you've been like a break of relationship has happened you've gone through this massive process um, and then at the very final result you've then you've not invited God's people into the decision making process and so I guess that's an example you know inviting the church it doesn't have to be the pastor and the elders but inviting the church into the decision making process rather than going on a massive process of decision and just announcing when it's so late that it would be rude for anyone to ask any questions about it. Sadly, to use a much, much sadder example, it's often an experience particularly for men whose partners leave them in marriage for that to happen as well. That by the time she says, I'm leaving, she's been planning it for, for months and months and years. And so by the time he finds out, there's not really anything he can do. Yeah? We need to in the big... I mean, that's a, that's a sad, awful, painful example. Uh, from the most awful, radical examples, draw people in early. I'm really struggling. Yeah? Invite others into your vulnerability, to your struggles. From those sad examples, right through to just the decision-making examples of a job or a church or a ministry. Draw others in. Seek advice to help us be wise. Third comment, and I'll be much briefer here, be firm yet flexible. I think that's trying to tie together the principles of big perspective enables us to be flexible because God's in control, yeah? And also the big perspective helps us be firm and persevere because God's in control. And so we need both those things. Neither uh, stubborn, immovable firmness um, nor completely flitty, flighty, blowing here and there flexibility but slowly work at both a firmness and a flexibility. And then last of all, um, a final comment, again coming back to do what you want. Delight in the Lord, see things from his point of view, 
Love what God loves and hate what God hates and die to yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus. Store up treasure in heaven. Uh, Set aside your own interests for the good of others. Fan into flames the gifts of uh, the fruit of the Spirit and love, joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and and self-control. Work on all of these things that make you like Jesus. And then within that... Do what seems good to you. Do the good deeds that come before you and seize them. Take up the ministries that you're drawn to and do them. And in free, good conscience, stop agonising about the absolute right, the absolute must, the absolute what should I do, what's God's plan for my life, and just do something. Do what God's given you to do. Yeah, Do what you want to do. And spend less time agonising and more time getting on and serving. Yeah? We should devote our high emotional energy to godliness and the kingdom of God. And then into the should we, shouldn't we's feel very free. Yeah? Very free in the freedom of the Lord. Yeah? We'll stop there, I'll pray. And then uh, Mark will tell us. We'll just go straight to questions. Okay, cool. Um, Heavenly Father, we ask for your help in these things, that you form the mind of Christ in, in our minds, you form Christ in all of our thinking, feeling, doing and living. We pray that you make us wise in our character and inform our conscience by your word, so that then as we face the decisions of life, uh, we can freely choose between good options, confident that in all these things, Uh, you can still work out your great purpose. We ask for your help in that. Some of us may be facing very difficult things. And so we pray that as we follow this path, uh, you may bless us in all we do and stay with us through the troubles that are unavoidable in this life. We delight in you and the great riches we have in Christ. And in the face of that, all the troubles of this life we know one day will seem like nothing in comparison. In his name we pray. Amen.